Hey, beautiful friend. Welcome back to the podcast. So today we're going to chat about a really important topic, and this is something that I feel like I have learned the hard way through motherhood, but we're going to chat about how to advocate for yourself and for your family and for other people. And this was something that I've grown tremendously in just through motherhood and through a lot of kind of trial and error and just continually stretching myself in this way. So we're going to go through my top 12 tips for you for the best ways to advocate for yourself and for other people and to continue to gain more courage in how to do so, how to navigate difficult conversations, how to navigate conversations with either your supervisors, your teammates, really anybody through especially pregnancy and postpartum. And I know this is something that we oftentimes experience as military mothers, as military women. There's a lot of, we all know, there's a lot of stigmas surrounding motherhood in our professions. And so this is an important topic I'm often asked for advice on. Um, Everything from advocating for major policy change to the ground level of boots on the ground of like what is impacting you in your day-to-day life. And so I want to share these tips to empower you and really equip you with these tools to prepare for those difficult conversations. And those, those conversations we might oftentimes otherwise avoid out of either fear of consequences, fear of being judged, of perceptions, um, and, and other kind of worries that we might have going into them. So let's dive in. Hey friend, welcome to Arm to the Heart. I'm Megan Gephardt. I believe life and motherhood is a gift. I believe each of us are born with a unique mission we're meant to fulfill. I believe babies and dreams can and do go together. I believe it is possible to pursue the dreams in our hearts and also be a great mom at the same time when we let God lead us. I believe it takes a village and a whole lot of grace and that military life and motherhood is so much better when we do it together. So let's put on the armor of God Let's run this race set before us as sisters in arms, as sisters in Christ. All right, my first tip is to trust your instinct, trust your gut. And what I mean by this, I really mean those issues that tend to come up where somebody might maybe dismiss a concern that you have, somebody might do something that doesn't quite feel right to you, that doesn't seem like it's the right thing either across the organization or um, that you're on the receiving end of or that your family is on the receiving end of. So a couple situations that might come up, for example, are if you feel dismissed when you're seeing a provider for a concern that you might have uh, about your body, about your healing process postpartum in particular. Maybe it's pelvic health concerns. Maybe you're experiencing pain with sex. Maybe you're experiencing urinary incontinence. Maybe you're experiencing um, other forms of pelvic pain. Maybe you're experiencing you know, something that seems really off postpartum and you just can't quite put your finger on it and you're like, you know, I really should get this checked out or I want to go get blood blood samples done and, you know, make sure that I'm doing okay in my iron levels and my hormones and different things like that. If something feels off to you, do not push past that and instead trust your instinct. Another one that I was just talking with a friend about is her baby had both a tongue and a lip tie. And so obviously that impacted right away her breastfeeding journey. And she, having gone through this with her previous baby, knew exactly what it was. And in the hospital, she asked right away for the pediatrician to do an evaluation. And the pediatrician on the spot was like, I can't actually um, make a determining determination for you. And so basically she was kind of like left on her own. And she instead just called directly over to the specialty doctor that she had gotten it taken care of with her other son. And they trusted her and said, okay, you know what? We're not going to require you to get a referral. 
let's, I, I will come in. Basically, I will see your baby. And sure enough, yep, lip and tongue tie. And because she was so, she was confident in her own instincts and in her own sense of, okay, something is not quite right here. I could, she was like, I could tell the first, very first latch that she had, she could tell something was off. And so mama, trust your instinct, trust your instinct and don't just bypass that. God has given you that for a reason. And so many times in motherhood, we oftentimes will look beyond ourselves and we'll, we'll fall into a lot of self-doubt regarding a lot of different things. So don't be afraid to kind of second guess if you're receiving advice that kind of seems off. You know, some other ones that I see oftentimes are breastfeeding and some different some different opinions or a lack of awareness that might be out there, even in the medical community. And even sometimes with pediatricians, it's really, it's really sad, but sometimes there's not, there's, they're not up to date on the latest, the latest information that's out there on how beneficial breastfeeding can be even extended breastfeeding up to at least a year or two years, even postpartum. And that's from the World Health Organization that recommends two years of breastfeeding. And so, you know, our society is a little bit different in that that's not quite as sort of societally accepted, but don't let anybody push something on you that you don't feel comfortable with or that you feel like is off. You know your baby best, you know your family best, you know yourself best, you know your body best. So those are a couple examples for you to kind of think about, but truly trust your instinct. And that's the very first step. Number two, my second point here. And, and my second tip for you is to do your research to empower you. Education is empowering. But one of the things that you can really focus on researching is familiarizing yourself with policies and with your rights and with the kind of procedures that are related to whatever it is that you are going through. So this is especially, I see this so many times with pregnancy and postpartum in the military. So I cannot emphasize enough the value of understanding the regulations and the policies that govern these timeframes in your respective organization so that when you enter into conversations, when you end up facing different situations, you kind of know where to go and you're able to then advocate for yourself based on your rights that are doctrinally mandated. So oftentimes, unfortunately, our leaders are not always spun up on these things and, you know, sometimes to no fault of their own, but once we know better, we can do better as leaders, but we don't always have that awareness of the things we don't know until somebody kind of brings it to our attention, maybe, you know, how we can help better. And so give them the benefit of the doubt, but at the same time, know what is required of your chain of command, know what's required of your support that you are allocated. And this again comes up so many times when it comes to our our lactation rights, our pumping rights when we return to work, that's a really big one. And there are so many other equal opportunity policies. There's so many non-discrimination policies with regards to pregnancy in your workplace and in your profession. There are um, certain physical limitations that might impact your ability to do certain aspects of your job if you're in the military because our job tends to be you know, very physically demanding. And so, of course, that's meant to protect your baby and your health. But there are certain restrictions that your leadership might not know about, and they might just ask you to continue to do things, and you might have to be the one to step up and say, hey, this isn't quite right. Hey, you know what? This is actually what the regulation says. Let's come to a you know compromise here. Let's make sure that we're, we're abiding by the policy and that we're keeping everybody safe. So that's a good one to think about. Federal, state, and organization or service-specific laws to support you. Those are the ones you're going to want to know. Um, and if you don't kind of know where to where to look, then I recommend you either reach out to me, I, I can probably point you in the right direction, or you just even just start by Googling um, or look to your, if you have a human resources department, if you have a legal advocate uh, for your organization, those are good places to start. You know, make sure you're familiar with the 
medical care, the prenatal care, or, you know, other support systems and resources and specialists like that that you can request a referral through. Those are huge ones. Know your leave policies, your timeframes, your paid or unpaid, your options that are available, how you can use those to best support your family, and to know that those are authorized to you and those make sure that you're familiar with the exact policies on what can and can't be, you know, kind of commander's discretion, what can't be taken away from you, what is absolutely supposed to be given to you versus the things that are a little bit more up um, for interpretation. Again, I, I mentioned lactation and breastfeeding support, but there's so many federal regulations, there's state regulations, and then there's the organization-specific regulations that protect your rights to choose if you want to breastfeed and continue to pump upon returning to work and duty, and you have to be given the time and space to do that. So that's really critical. You know, know your child care options, your family care policies. Uh, one big note, this is a very, just kind of a separate tangential note, but I always I always tell every pregnant mom, because you don't always know this, when you're in the military or just outside the military even, daycare slots are really hard to come by. And so apply right away. Put yourself on a wait list as soon as you find out that you are pregnant. And that's something that it might not be intuitive because sometimes you feel like, okay, my baby has to be born to apply for childcare. No, that's not the case. So make sure that you are doing that as soon as possible to be proactive. So you just open as many options as you can for your family. None of this should be committal. Um, you know, some of maybe a civilian, um, outside of the military childcare option, they might have a registration or, um, application fee or something like that, but just there are options to apply, especially in the military. There are options to put in applications without any form of commitment. So that can really just help you open your options. Know your timeframes that you're given for recovery. Know your timeframes that you should be given for your healing process. And those are really, really important. So I'm here to help. I'm very passionate about advocating for these policies, of course, and have navigated you know, so many of these things myself from everything from being denied opportunities because of pregnancy to navigating breastfeeding and pumping through tons of field training time and crazy environments to being stationed apart from my husband during pregnancy and maternity leave, being the first to go through so many different things and having to navigate like being the only one who's ever gone through something before. We all know that that's really hard and you're paving the way in so many ways um, and, and going through the growing pains of that within an organization. So I'm very familiar with all the army regulations in particular. I'm also familiar with a number of the other service specific components, um, regulations. And so I'm more than willing to assist if there's anything that you're having a hard time finding or something that you're, you know, a challenge that you're going through that you're not really sure how to confront. So that's what I want to really reinforce to you there. Just knowing your regulations and rights can be such a game changer because you can come into any conversations and advocating for yourself fully equipped with basically like the armor that it kind of takes to, mm. to fight that fight. All right. Number three, Number three is to connect with potential experts or those who have been through it before you. And this can be just so, so helpful, both from a, you know, mentorship standpoint to a camaraderie standpoint to a, how am I supposed to solve this problem? You know, I've, I've never, I don't really know what to expect. I've never really been through this before. So just look to the people who have, or look to the people who might um, be a little bit more aware maybe of you than some of those resources that are out there, some of the regulations and those kinds of things. And 
I know for me, I've had pivotal people in my life who have been willing to advocate for me when I either didn't quite have the ability to influence those things at my level, or I didn't even know where to start. I didn't really know what options there were. And so that can just be so, so critical. So if you are a leader, make sure that you are taking those opportunities to advocate for your people. But then if you're also on the receiving end of, of an issue that kind of needs to be confronted, then don't be afraid to reach out to somebody who you know, would also be able to or willing to um, shape it, if that makes sense. So I know for me, an example, one of my good friends, Kristen, who was in my basic officer course with me, she had a baby who was, I think at the time, about a year and a half old. And she unfortunately had to be away from her baby during the whole time that we were at the training course. And it was four months um, in Arizona. And I went when my older son, Matthew, was just, he was six weeks old when I took the fitness test to validate my ability to go. And I went very quickly so I could get our family station back together because Tim and I were apart for that entire pregnancy and the entire postpartum time. We weren't going to come back together until a year postpartum. And I was like, I need to get my family station back together sooner. I need to catch back up on my career. And I didn't really know how to support myself through healing. And I didn't know, I didn't know what I didn't know, which was that I really shouldn't be rushing my recovery, but that's what I felt like I had to do at the time. And so I, I was jumping into everything and we had six weeks of field training time where we were away at night. So imagine this, having a two-month-old baby where you are exclusively breastfeeding and or pumping for them, and you have to spend six total work weeks away from them overnight. And it was, I mean, it was honestly just heartbreaking and really difficult at the same time. But I was really trying to maintain pumping for him and a milk supply and all of those things when I was gone. And so this was like a lot of creative problem solving that it took and a lot of just asking for the support that I needed to do that, to make it work. You know, most of the time I was able to store and transport my milk back and forth, even when we had no running water, when we didn't really have electricity, when we didn't have refrigeration and all those things. So we figured out ways to make it work. But I, I will tell you, my friend Kristen, I am just so grateful for her and how God placed her there because she was she was my voice before I even found my own voice as a mother. She was she was really willing to fight for me when I had no idea how to do that, when I didn't have the courage to do that. And she wasn't afraid to speak up for me. And so, you know, then I learned after having been on the receiving end of that, I learned how to do that for myself and I learned how to do that for other women. And I continued carrying that on for the rest of my time until now. But that was kind of the beginning for me. And so don't be afraid to do that for other people and don't be afraid to reach out to others who can do that for you. Number four is to approach any conversations where you're advocating for yourself or for other people from a mutual benefit standpoint. So this is going to help you to be more tactful about it and kind of more strategic in the way that you approach it, but posture yourself in a, in a way where in, in the conversation, in a way that you're really working to kind of jointly satisfy the interests of both parties. So let's just say if it's your boss or really anybody, like think about what's in it for them, you know? And so maybe for you, it's like, okay, taking care of this you know, this thing for my family or this issue for me and my health is going to allow me to continue to be a high performing, the most dedicated member of the team that I can be. And it's just going to help me to, you know, having this taken care of and to not have to worry about it is going to allow me to be really focused and present when I am at work and to, you know, not have all these things, other things kind of bogging me down, you know, or slowing me down or whatever it is, you know. And so you're going to be able to be that much more committed and present when you're not dealing with a whole bunch of other life concerns, right? And, and we all kind of know that theoretically, but sometimes it's helpful to even communicate that. So something you can do, you know, is, is of course, if you do research ahead of time, if you try to, you know, kind of resolve it on your own or at a lower level first, if you've exhausted other angles and then they're the right person to come to, then awesome. And make sure you are communicating 
how this is going to benefit them, how it's going to benefit the team as a whole, how it's going to benefit the organization and those who follow. Those are some good things to kind of think about. How it will make you guys a, a better team across the board. All right, number five, my fifth tip for you is to be ready to bring solutions. So be willing to do some problem solving legwork. And let's just say, I'm just going to keep going back to the pumping example because this always comes up for the women that I'm in touch with and serving. But if you really want to continue to breastfeed and that's your goal and you know your unit is going to some kind of a training event or you're going to be off site or you know you're going to have to travel, you just know it's going to, there's going to be difficult situations or, or maybe you just know that you are, you want to continue pumping when you return to work and there's no lactation room set up already for your organization. Be willing to do, take a little bit of initiative and you know, maybe scout out some potential locations, maybe talk to the facilities manager, see what options are available, see how you could potential resource, resource some of the things that might be necessary for a lactation room, like a, you know, maybe a comfortable sofa or some chairs and a table and a little mini fridge or something like that, you know. So get creative and, and be willing to do a little bit of that legwork ahead of time, even before the conversation so that you can really come in prepared for it and to show them that, hey, you're, you're willing to take on some of this burden too. And it's not just not just going to be on them to solve all of your problems. You know what I mean? So that can just be a really great way to approach it. The number six is, and also when you, sorry, when you go into those conversations, then when you have a lot of maybe the, the solutions potentially figured out, you can also propose, here's a couple of different courses of action that we can take. And here's the potential risks and benefits of each of those. Here's the potential cost, And here's the potential, um, you know, payoff for them. And so, and this is my top recommendation because of X, Y, and Z. And how much easier is it for somebody who is capable of maybe making that decision or having a little bit more influence on you to just be like, yeah, that sounds like the good one. I'll have that one conversation and then it'll be good to go. And like, it will then launch the, the thing in the right direction for you. So that can just be really helpful across the board. All right. Number six is anticipating the structure of the conversation can allow you to have more empathy for their perspective on the receiving end, help you assume the best in them, can, to kind of make them feel a little bit less like they have to get on the defensive in their posture in response to you. Uh, it's going to help you understand any pressures they might personally be under uh, that are kind of pushing them a certain direction maybe with this issue. It may give you a heads up of what might be most difficult about it, what their might you know, their resistance potentially might be and any counter arguments that they might have. So let me give you a couple examples of potential structure of the conversation. So maybe it's a conversation that you're having when you're advocating for yourself or for other people or your family about what happened. Maybe it's a disagreement over what did or should have happened, um, what should happen in the future, who said or did what, what's right or what's not, what's um, meant to happen, who's to blame. If it's a conversation like that, then there's going to be certain you know, arguments. There's going to be certain perspectives, right, that we want to be thinking about. If it's a different structured conversation that's more about feelings, if the, the primary crux of the matter is, you know, whose feelings are more valid, should I acknowledge or deny them? You know, what do I do with this other person's feelings? And maybe it's, you know, somebody was hurt. Maybe somebody's under a lot of pressure. Maybe somebody was uncomfortable. Maybe something was inappropriate. So just consider in your perspective and also their perspective, what feelings might be involved. Is it hurt? Is it anger? Is it disappointment? Is it feeling disrespected or unvalued? Is it being treated unfairly? Is it, you know, misunderstanding? Is it, you know, and, and honestly talking about and managing our feelings is one of the hardest things that we do as human beings, right? And this is never kind of without risk. It doesn't always feel safe to address these things. So approach it from a lot of self-compassion and also compassion for the other person. 
And this is a skill that can be learned. You know, it, it may feel safer in some ways to avoid these conversations, but we don't often realize that it can cause a lot more underlying pain and we don't address it before it really boils over. So that's another form of conversation or issue that it might be. The third structure that could be at play here um, that you might want to think about is if this is an identity conversation. So basically what, how you will know if it's an identity conversation or an identity um, based issue is if it's this sort of internal debate over, you know, what this means, what this means to us, um, what this means about the other person, what this means about you and your identity. So anything that is impacting our self-image, our self-esteem, our future, our job security, our well-being, who we are, how competent or incompetent or good or bad we are, um, anything that's related maybe to self-doubts or insecurities or something beneath the surface level substance is actually at stake. So it feels like our worth or our identity is on the line in some way, shape, or form. And the other person, it might be the case for them. So it kind of disrupts our sense of self in some ways. Who, you know, it may feel like it's just like it's shaking who we are in the world or highlighting what we we hope for in the future. And so those situations can feel very emotionally charged and kind of threatening because of those reasons and maybe harder to address because of those underlying reasons and those underlying dynamics that are at play. So all that to say, my number six point here is that when you anticipate that whatever the structure is of the conversation that's underlying in the context for it, it gives you a much better sense of what their perspective will probably be, what pressures they might be experiencing internally and externally, maybe from other people as well as themselves. And it will give you that heads up to prepare for what their the difficulties they might have in the conversation and the potential disagreements they may have, the resistance they may have to hearing your side, the counter arguments that they might bring to you. And so when you're just prepared for that, it can be a lot easier going into it. Number seven is we need to manage our strong emotions. So we got to, we have to stay balanced regardless of how the other person responds. So if we have a hard time in the moment staying balanced and keeping those charged emotions out of it, we can take a break or step away. If we lose our balance, we can come back to the conversation. And so you know, I think it's important to ask yourself, what's really at stake for you here? What do you kind of need to maybe navigate internally first so you can be better grounded going into that conversation? So four things that you can do before those difficult conversations so that you can be more mentally and emotionally um, composed through them, regardless of how the other person responds. Number one is you can examine your own story, your own thoughts, your own emotions, and you can kind of negotiate with them. And so what do I really mean by that? We oftentimes assume that our feelings and our emotions are, they're fact. Like we assume that they are fact and they're not something that we can control. We also want to often fix our feelings, jump over them, suppress them, get on with things, just address the problem head on and ignore the feelings about it. And we're oftentimes not taught how to process our feelings, right? And so before either sharing our feelings with anyone or letting them bleed into the conversation in a less than helpful way, then we can, we can help ourselves out by negotiating with our own perceptions about what's going on in our own feelings. And so it's this fundamental recognition that our thoughts are actually optional. Our, we have a narrative and a story about the situation that we are, we are telling ourselves in our head and the way that we can sift through what is fact and what is truth and what is perception and what is um, reality and what is feeling about it is actually by just taking a look and, and really outlining like, what are the facts, the hard facts about this situation that are non-disputable, that would hold up in a court of law that are just completely objective, what happened or what, you know, what those, like I said, non-disputable facts are. Everything else 
my friend, is our story about it. And I'm kind of cringing because I know it's hard to sometimes accept that. But the rest of it is the narrative that we are making up, and the rest of it is our thoughts about that situation. So the situation itself is the neutral, objective part. That is the facts. And everything else that we separate out from that is actually our story about it, which is causing our feelings and our emotions. And so our thinking is leading us down certain, you know, maybe certain spirals or certain approaches to this conversation. But the more we can kind of enter the conversation from a cleaner place by recognizing what is that story that we might be telling ourselves that's giving rise to those emotions that we're experiencing, we can then sort through that enough to really enter into the conversation from a little bit more mature and cleaner place. So we're not entering it in a way that's like jabbing the other person. We're more cool-headed and more objective, and we can also be more empathetic in that sense. So that's the very first thing that I recommend doing to make sure that you are able to maintain your emotional balance uh, regardless of what ends up happening in the conversation. The second one is deciding on what you will share and how to share it. So we oftentimes view emotions as inappropriate, weak, unprofessional, and all of these things. But I want to give you a different way of thinking about this. Oftentimes we confuse being emotional with communicating our emotions. So when I express to you the importance of being in tune with your emotions and how, or the other person's potential emotions and how that might be kind of playing a part in this issue that you might be experiencing, that's very, those are very different things. Being emotional is very different than knowing our emotions, being in tune with our emotions, communicating our emotions. So it is possible to communicate our emotions about something very clearly and in a composed, tactful manner without actually being emotional at all. So I want you to kind of chew on that for a moment. (laughs) It is very possible. So you can describe, you know, how something made you feel without feeling angry in the moment. You know, that's kind of an example. All right. uh, Number eight is, and this is another one of those ways that we can also maintain that emotional balance, is letting go of trying to control the other person's reaction. You know, we may already, or they may already feel a lot of conflicting emotions. They may want to, you know, we probably want to avoid the other person getting upset with us. But the thing is, we cannot control another person's reaction. We are not responsible for other people's emotions. And so preparing for their response, right, is is important. But at the same time, you know, we, we can't control that. We're not responsible for how other people react to the things that we do or say that's, that's really on them. And just likewise, we are responsible for our own emotions, our own reactions to situations, our own reactions to what other people say and do. And so, yes, we cannot always control what other people say or do or the situations that happen to us, the things that happen to us, but we always have the power to control our response. And that's where the true freedom and the peace can come because that's where we're really empowered. And when we let go of the things that we can't control or we surrender to them, or we know what we can fight for and what we can influence more versus what is out of our our control or what we might need help from other people to influence, then the better off we're going to be in navigating these situations that we really might need to advocate for. So number nine is committing to your why. And again, this is another one that helps you in emotional command. But imagining, you know, imagining the future or kind of taking that step back and with perspective, asking yourself, you know, what's going to be important a year, five years, 10 years, 30 years from now, you know, give yourself space to process whatever fears it is of judgment, disappointment, rejection, perceptions, being misunderstood, you know, retaliation, any of those kinds of things. But ask yourself, you know, what could the worst case scenario be? You know, maybe they judge me a little bit. Maybe they look at me slightly differently. How could I handle that? You know, whatever the worst case scenario is, how would I handle that? How could I be resilient through that? you know, and and what is going to matter most at the end of the day. And so when we're grounded in our why, we can then kind of 
be a little bit less overcome by our fears and able to move through those fears with more courage, with faith over fear. Because again, it's a faith in the the future and that perspective of, okay, this is what's going to be more worth it down the line than whatever this fear is that I feel very paralyzed by in this moment. I know for me, when I was first um, preparing to graduate West Point and commission back in 2018, like five years ago, almost now, um, when I was beginning my service, I set my vision for my military service as I want to run this race for Christ faithfully. And what that meant for me was I want to serve honorably. I want to, when I hang up this uniform at some point in time, whatever that ends up being, I want to know that my family is by my side and my integrity is intact. So that I served honorably, that my family is by my side, and my integrity remained intact. And so what does it look like for you? You know, and and part of me doing that is this podcast. Part of me doing that is all that because the work that I've done having so many hard conversations, being willing to put myself and even sometimes my career on the line to fight for what is right. And that's not easy by any means. And it, I think in in a lot of ways, yes, it hasn't been without a cost, but I also know that it is very rewarding. And it is, for me, that is what's worth it at the end of the day. And that's what makes my military service worth it too, to know that I'm making things better for the people who follow and that I'm not accepting less than what we should be as an organization. All right, number 10 is be prepared for a no. <laughs> you know, if you're, let's just say you're asking for a yes in some way, shape, or form, be prepared for a no, but also don't let your valid concerns be dismissed or go unheard. So you don't have to accept your first no. You don't have to accept your first no. And oftentimes we may receive a no the first time, but that person that said no to us might not even be, the first of all, the, for the person who is capable of making that decision. Um, And secondly, they might just not know there's another way. And so, you know, use your discernment. But if you feel like you're, you have valid concerns that are being dismissed, then don't be afraid to not accept that. You can take a variety of different courses of action to either elevate it to the next level or seek a second opinion, get a third party um, involved, potentially um, get you know, some maybe take a step back and say, okay, how can I maybe approach this in a different from a different angle or in a different way that might be more mutually beneficial? So there's a lot of different courses of action you can take. So for example, if you were to receive a, no, I'm not going to give you a referral when you ask for pelvic floor physical therapy because you're dealing with some symptoms and you want to get that further evaluation so you don't have to deal with those symptoms postpartum. And your doctor is like, uh, no, I don't think you need a referral to that. That's pretty normal and expected. You know, if it, if, you know, in a month or so it doesn't go away, come back to me. No, that should not be their answer. Let me tell you straight up, that should not be their answer. Well, honestly, pelvic floor physical therapy should be standard of care for postpartum mothers, but it's not. And sometimes there there is kind of this culture of we've got to push through and have this super high threshold of pain to be able to, or whatever it is, to be able to get a referral. But it should not be the case. We should be much more proactive in it, and it will resolve so many of those symptoms much earlier on rather than pushing through and ending up spurring more complications or making it harder. The more proactively we address pelvic floor symptoms, the easier it is to resolve the issue completely versus ending up having lingering pains for much longer or issues for a much longer time in our life. And our our habits that our body is basically applying to compensate for those 
complications or those challenges are going to be basically digging us into a deeper hole. And so, for example, with urinary incontinence, if we can catch it much earlier on before it becomes a deeper form of stress urinary incontinence and it becomes more of a chronic issue versus a every once in a while um, or when I do certain kinds of movements issue, we don't want it to get worse, right? And so that's that's why we have to be proactive about these things. So if you receive a no, here's some things that you can do. Number one, you can push them in the moment. You can, you can basically reinforce, no, I am not going to take no for an answer because I absolutely need pelvic floor physical therapy right now. And you can reinforce the way that it's impacting you and your quality of life and your functional movement, your exercise, your ability to do your job, your intimacy with your husband, whatever it is that it's impacting. Be honest about it. There's no shame in it. This is how they need to know what it's costing you so that they can really kind of see that full picture. And the second thing that you can do is if they still are like, no, then ask them, why are you denying this request for a referral? And say, if you are still going to deny this request when I, I tell you I, I really need this support, then what you can do is you can say, please document that you are denying my request for a referral in my chart. And they probably won't want to do that because it kind of looks bad on them. And then the next thing that you can do is if they still, they're still not about it, <laughs> then um, or if they're giving you excuses or whatever it is, then you can tell them you're going to go to patient advocate and actually go to patient advocate. Patient advocacy is there for you for exactly these reasons, to advocate, to be an advocate for you if you feel like you're being dismissed or you're being unheard, um, you're not being taken seriously. And so that's a great resource to go to. Another thing that you can do is you can kind of go um, the other another direction and you can go to the either if there is a pelvic floor physical therapy um, clinic or if there's a physical therapy clinic in your hospital, you could walk in and tell them what you need and ask them to get in touch with the, the medical team so that they can request your referral because you felt like you weren't you weren't being taken seriously and you feel like you need the support. And you can explain your situation and all that. Another thing that you could do is if you if there's no pelvic health specialist available to you within your military treatment facility or within your hospital, then what they will have to do is they will have to give you a within the insurance network out of um, essentially out of your hospital referral. And so they'll they'll send you off post or, you know, wherever it is to another provider who can provide that specialty support for you. And so what you could do is you could go to either pelvic guru or um, pelvic I think it's pelvic health rehab. There's a couple different really great um, directories out there. If you just Google, you know, pelvic health uh, directory or like pelvic floor physical therapist directory, you'll be able to find a few of them and then Google your local area and see what pops up of different clinics that you could potentially go to. And then what you could do is you can call those numbers directly and ask them if they take your insurance. And if they do, let's just say your TRICARE, your military as well, and your military treatment facility doesn't have a pelvic floor physical therapist available. And so they're like kind of stingy with referrals because maybe, or maybe they only have one and they already have a very full client load. Okay. So if that's the case and they can't take any more patients, then they're, they're probably either going to be stingy with referrals or they're going to refer you off post, but sometimes they might not want to go through the legwork or I don't know. There's lots of barriers potentially to include not, you know, a lack of education in providers in addition to the, um, of the benefits of public floor physical therapy and the symptoms and all those things in addition to like the actual maybe cultural barriers, why they're not referring. And so that is something that you can do. You can call them directly. You can explain your situation. You can make sure that they take your insurance and then you can ask them to then ask for a referral on your behalf. And like that can initiate the process. Uh, so those are some really good routes to take if you are running into roadblocks with that particular situation. So some learning lessons from that, right? Right. That that was an example of when you receive a no, 
you can kind of push the envelope a little bit with that person first to see, okay, maybe they just didn't quite understand how important this is to me or what the full situation is that's causing the context behind my request. Um, maybe they need a little bit of, a little bit of encouragement to, um, not dismiss you. Maybe they need to be held accountable to doing their job. Maybe they need to be, and that sounds bad, but it's true. Maybe they need to receive, you know, a little bit of a ping from somebody who has a bit more sway over them. And that could include, like I said, patient advocate, that could include their supervisor. You could put in an ICE complaint. Um, oftentimes the hospitals will take that, you know, and, and sometimes people just do need a little bit of a wake up call that they, they need to look at situations differently or be more empathetic or whatever it is. So those are things that we can do. Um, the, there's, there's usually like third party representatives that could be available for different things. So if you're in the military, we have equal opportunity advisors. We have, you know, our legal support teams. We've got our JAG. We've got our um, inspector general. So a number of those resources can also probably point you in the right direction. If you're running into an issue and you feel like you're unheard and you've tried to use your chain of command or you've tried to use your immediate like supervisor chain and you're, you know, you've consulted with peers or maybe others who have gone through it before, you're still running into roadblocks. Those are very good resources to go to. And they can kind of give an extra set of eyes on your situation. They can help you maybe address it in a different way, or they could help you address it themselves. Utilizing an open door policy can be really great options. Open door policies in military at least are written in such a way that legally we cannot be denied the ability to use them. We don't have to be given permission to use the open door policy, and that's why it's there as kind of an oversight mechanism. And other, there are other sources too of ways that you can address issues anonymously. And so you can usually put in complaints anonymously. Usually there's, you know, especially in military, there's like the culture climate surveys that we do, ways that you can also make anonymous reports. And so those are things to consider depending on your situation, depending on what you're worried about, maybe going into any of these conversations or issues. So there's lots of different ways we can address things from different angles. And I just don't want you to feel like you're disempowered through these processes. Number 11 is to keep in mind your unconditional worth. Or the more we can detach our own worth and our, our value as a human being from the results of these conversations or other people's opinions of us, the easier it's going to be to navigate those hard conversations. So know that, you know, let's just say you are in the military or if you're in another job, and you feel like, you know, there's things that are on the line if you're having this conversation, just remember that at the end of the day, we are replaceable to our organizations or to our jobs, but we're irreplaceable to our families. And I do not say this to dismiss whatever contributions and sacrifices you make daily, either in service to your profession or in your job and how hard you work and all of those things. But no matter how important our role is to the team or our personal dedication to that mission, someone else can learn to fill our job. Someone else could get that job done. Maybe not exactly how we did it, but they could. But to our families, we are the only mother of our child, wife to our husband, you know? And so those are things to just think about, like keep it in perspective of what is most important. And, you know, know that, like, let's just say you're feeling, um, you're feeling guilt around maybe advocating for yourself in pregnancy because there's something that's unsafe that you're being asked to do, or, or maybe something like that. Or even postpartum, maybe you're deciding, okay, do I want to take my rights to defer a deployment with my unit so that I can recover more, so that I can continue to breastfeed my child, so that I'm not away from them for nine months when they're really young. And that is authorized in our regulation for a reason, because the bonding time is important. And so we oftentimes feel that pressure that is sacrifice our family for the job. 
for the sake of the job. And so that those are situations we find ourselves in. So even if it's not ideal for the team, I know we're balancing our sense of duty to our family and to our job, but good leaders should actually be really supportive of you to make those hard decisions. And I know I wish this wasn't the reality. And unfortunately, many of us are not all blessed with caring, compassionate leaders who really put people first and put families first. But in the long run, our family is what truly matters, right? And they will be there for us far beyond our tenure in any kind of profession, even if we have ambitious goals for the impact that we want to make. Nothing outweighs the blessing of, you know, this new life or our family. So do not let anyone make you feel guilty for growing your family, for starting your family, for taking care of your family. They are not worth it. And to be honest, if they're if they're the kind of people who give you a hard time for that, their opinions probably shouldn't matter to you as much as they may feel like they matter to you in your mind. So, you know, hold hold more weight to the opinions of people who share your values rather than people's opinions that, that might not. And I know it's easier said than done, but just the more we can kind of like really do that inner work to do that ourselves, the easier it's going to be to navigate these situations. All right. So with all that being said, you know, with, with those conversations, eliminating the fear and anxiety going into them is not a realistic goal. We're going to feel some fear. We're going to feel some anxiety. We're going to feel stress maybe going into these hard conversations. They're hard for a reason, you know, they're sensitive topics oftentimes, but we can learn to manage that fear and anxiety more and that is obtainable. So part of it, and I feel like part of life in general and motherhood and all these things is about wrestling with our identity, who we are, who, who we are not, what we're willing to stand for. And, you know, it's, it's almost like, what hills are we willing to die on, you know? And we can improve our ability to recognize and bring awareness to those issues when they come up so that we can better cope with them. And knowing, you know, when our identity kind of feels at risk, knowing what certain situations mean to us, knowing what we are willing to fight for and why is that first step towards reducing our anxiety and kind of strengthening our foundation in that. So that can be really helpful for us in general. And then the last thing, number 12, is... I want you to keep in mind and always think about how can I leave my organization, my team, whatever it is, better than I found it. You are, my friend, worthy of communicating your needs, your family's needs and desires. You are worthy of standing up for yourself and for others. You are worthy of standing up for what is right. And oftentimes when it comes to creating culture change and being part of the change that we all want to see, it takes risk. That's the truth. That's the hard truth about it. And the more we're willing to do that in little ways, the easier it gets to do it in big ways. And so it may feel terrifying at first, but it oftentimes at the end of the day will yield a greater respect for you from the people around you and also more confidence. Your confidence will grow when you do it and it will no longer be kind of hanging over your head or burdening you alone. It will no longer be causing an underlying resentment that is just unspoken because that issue wasn't being given the opportunity to be addressed. And it also is courtesy to the other person that if, if there's something that's bothering you about either what's going on, what you're receiving, you're on the receiving end of what they're doing, it gives the other person the chance to resolve it and be part of the solution. And oftentimes we as leaders, we, we don't, we aren't able to read everybody else's mind of the people that we're leading and what they're going through. And so don't be afraid to bring what you're going through to the people who can help support you in that and help can, it can kind of make a difference for you in that way. Um, so it's a muscle we can strengthen. We can get better at it with practice. We can learn those skills. These are skills that can be learned. But also mindset is half the battle. And so you are your best advocate. You are your family's best advocate. You are your children's best advocate. And you're also the people that you lead, your subordinates, you are their best advocate too. And, you know, the more we can create a culture of taking care of each other, the better off we're all going to be at the end of the day. And the more we're going to be able to also retain talented personnel in our professions without driving everybody out of the military or out of our jobs, because, you know, it's harder to find that balance. You know, these are the kinds of 
kinds of specific things that make it so hard to find that balance, you know, and when we're equipped to handle these situations better with hard conversations, sometimes the easier it is to find a balance that works for us and work through those issues that are, that feel like these mountains that we're climbing every single day. And for our leaders, maybe it, it might look like a little anthill, but for us, it's a huge mountain. And so whatever those mountains are that you're climbing, don't be afraid to bring them to somebody to, to help like basically break down that mountain for you. You know what I mean? And, or strengthen you as you're walking it. So that's what I have for you today. And I especially encourage you, you know, you have every right, especially to advocate for your children. If you feel like something's not right, you know, with a daycare provider, with anything like that, they don't have a voice, you know, and, and so you are their voice as a mother. So, you know, God has given you that mama bear instinct, that protective defensive instinct for a reason. So listen to it and don't be afraid to have those hard conversations and hold other people accountable to, you know, what your child needs and, you know, making sure those needs are met. I know that can be hard in, you know, big take care settings when they're managing a bunch of different kids. So yeah, you are your children's best advocate. You are their voice too. And don't forget that as well. So I hope this was helpful for you. Let me know, you know, if you have specific issues that you are addressing, if you're like navigating really complicated situations, please don't hesitate to reach out. Reach out to me by email, megan at armtoheart.com. Let's have a conversation about it. Um, I'd be happy to help you by email if we can, or if I think it's something that warrants a, you know, hopping on a coaching call, I will tell you that, or even a discovery call, whatever it is, I will, I'll let you know, you know, where I think is probably the best next step for you. But if it's something that I can point you in the right direction of, I will do that. So please reach out to me. And I hope, again, I hope this served you well. And I'm praying for you and lifting you up in whatever mountains you are climbing, my friend. Keep fighting the good fight and I'll talk to you again soon.